We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Intelligence Squared Business Weekly. Today, we're hearing about how to grow your business. Here's The Economist, Linda Yu, with more. My guest today is Andrew Chen, and we're here to discuss his new book, The Cold Start Problem, Using Network Effects to Scale Your Product. It focuses on how some of the world's leading tech businesses grew from small startups into bywords for success. Andrew is a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, the startup investor behind Twitter, Airbnb, GitHub, Lyft, Reddit, and Skype, among others, and he writes a popular newsletter, blog, and much more. He was formerly head of rider growth at Uber. He's a true Silicon Valley insider. His fascinating new book answers the questions, why do some products take off? And what can we learn from them? So we'll discuss why a tiny number of tech products have made it into the Billion Users Club. Apple, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, WeChat, TikTok, Alipay. The book is based on more than 100 interviews, including with the founders and teams of some of the best-known startups, including the ones that I've just mentioned. So a warm welcome to you, Andrew. And before we get started on your book, tell me how you got started. You studied mathematics and not business, right? That's right. That's right. I studied applied math. Um, at the University of Washington, where I also took a lot of uh, economics classes as well. And so I was always so fascinated about how to quantify the messy, messy world of people. And then after going to Silicon Valley uh, in my mid-20s, I applied all of that thinking and knowledge to startups that I worked on, to companies I was advising, and ultimately, even today, at Andreessen Horowitz, I spend a lot of my time thinking about metrics, growth, user acquisition, all that good stuff, but really from a quantitative lens, in addition to the big visions and stories that we want the founders to be excited about. In your book, you write that the hardest part of launching a product is actually just getting started. So when you have an idea and a handful of customers, growth can feel impossible. So tell me about the cold start problem. 
Yeah, well, with the cold start problem, I want to actually just start with this concept of, of network effects. And this concept is such an important and core one. I really see it as the secret at the center of Silicon Valley's most successful technology companies. And when I think about why is it that WhatsApp and Instagram or Dropbox and Slack and Zoom, as well as YouTube and Twitch and Reddit have gotten so big and so powerful as different products, at the core, the amazing thing about them is that these are products that get better as more people use them. And so the more of your friends are in a messaging app that you use, the more of the content creators that you like um, are on a social uh, you know, video platform that you're using, or more of your coworkers are using these collaboration tools, that's when you engage even more. And this is not a new idea, by the way. This is an idea that if you go back 100 years ago, a guy named Thomas Vail, who is chairman of the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, which we now would call AT&T, remarked that a phone is a useless device. It is about who you connect with using the phone that makes it valuable. And so what that means is that on one side, you have immense power and growth and a lot of value if you're able to get a, a network to scale. On the other hand, it also means that if you are using a product and none of your friends are on it, none of your content creators are on it, none of your coworkers are on it, you're going to bounce. You're going to not use that app. And so you have this, you have this cold start problem at the heart of many of these very, very valuable companies where you need to have this. It's very tricky because you need to get the right number of people at the right time, all using the product in a certain way in order for you to find value out of it. And so the, the, the book is really about examining some of tech's biggest successes, especially over the last decade, and to find the themes and commonality for how, number one, how they solved the cold start problem, and then subsequently how they began to scale their businesses and also some of the problems that they face much later on, once they are at full scale, where all of a sudden they need to face competition with other networked products that also have network effects, where they deal with market saturation and all these other things that hurt them as well as help them at the, at the very beginning. Mm. I want to go through that term framework in a moment. I found it fascinating when you were writing that when you hear startup founders pitching for funding, their answer to the question what if your competition comes after you? Oh, the answer is my network effects. Why fund this company <laughs> instead of another one? Oh, it's network effects. <laughs> so the fact that you actually define network effects and really kind of talk through how it works in practice. That's what makes this book so fascinating. Essentially, you define network effects as when products get more valuable as more people use them. And it was actually at Uber that you understood network effects. So tell me about that time that you describe as a rocket coaster. It was both a rocket ship and a roller coaster. <laughs> and then why you left to join uh, A16Z, uh, which I now know is a nerdy shorthand for Andreessen Horowitz. <laughs> yes, my time at Uber was such a educational and an interesting one. And this is a company just to give you a, a sense of, you know, what a special company it is. 
most companies have war rooms. Um, that's when you take a conference room and you, you know, you have a special project that you're working on and you put, you know, the, 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 all the data and all the projects, you put them up on the walls and then you kind of host a war room and you want to make sure that you're on it every day until the, the project is done. Uber is such a fascinating company because when it was growing incredibly fast at one point when, when I was there, we were adding 3% of the world's population each year into the platform. We were spending over a billion dollars a year on paid marketing. And we had in the middle of the floor, a permanent war room. We were just had this mentality that we were just permanently, permanently uh, fighting battles in China, in New York, in Europe, in every possible region. And and what I learned there that was so fascinating is on one hand, it's so easy to look at a business like that, which is worth tens of billions of dollars. And to say, of course, it's successful. It has network effects. All the riders want to use it because the drivers are there. All the drivers want to use it because the riders are there. The more that both sides are using it, the better off the product is. And that's all true. But at the same time, the network effects for Uber are actually also quite weak. They're also very delicate because just because you have a lot of market share in a place like New York, where Uber has a ton of market share, there's no real competitors, um, you know, in, in, in that, in that market for a various set of reasons. That doesn't mean that the product works any better than in San Francisco or LA where Lyft is one of the major competitors. So it has these hyper-local network effects that only apply to one place and not the other. And you can compare that to a product like Zoom where people will use Zoom globally. You talk to people, I'm talking to you right now, <laughs> and I'm in California, and you're, you're not in California, right? And so, so other products have these global network effects that are, that are very interesting. Also, what you find is that almost every single one of these products, as they grow larger and larger and larger, they start to slow down over time because you eventually build out such a network that you end up with overcrowding effects. We all know that when we first started to all use social media together, that it was really, really fun. You'd follow all these people and you'd feel really good about it. Once you followed your thousandth person or your 2000th or 10,000th person, I have followed something like 10,000 people on Twitter, for example, it's just too much. It's just too much. It's too much content. And you need to start doing algorithmic needs. You need to do all this stuff in order to deal with the overcrowding. And so, so really the book is an exploration of all the ways that network effects helps you at the beginning although it's so hard to get to get it going, but then ultimately why it's actually very difficult to sustain over time and why a company like Uber actually ended up with 25,000 people. You know, again, if it's, if it's, if it's such an easy thing to, to get network effects and, and it just goes, all of these Silicon Valley tech companies wouldn't need to hire tens of thousands of people to keep the network going. Mm. So you decided to leave and uh, become a uh, funder sit on the other side. Yes, that's right. So I was very lucky to work with some amazing people there. Um, and then at, at Uber and, we got to a point in the company where the focus was less on growth, more on getting to profitability. And, uh, you know, not, and, and they obviously had a very well publicized changing of the guard at the, at the company. And I decided that I was already doing a lot of angel investing. I'd already invested in 30 or 40 small startups. And I decided that it would be fun to take all my knowledge and try to apply that across a wide landscape, um, not just rideshare, but, you know, both 
social and I've invested in companies like, like Clubhouse, um, as, as an example of one that's in social. I'm very interested in marketplace companies, companies like Snack Pass, new ways for people to make money like Substack, um, and on and on as, as kind of, you know, ways to apply my, the, the, the knowledge that I learned at, at Uber and in other cases. Mm, and that's indeed your book. You know, you are trying to, I think, tell a very, um, useful, uh, set of examples, how it is that a company can try and learn the lessons from, from all the experience you've had with startups and you look at history, you do lots of interviews. And in fact, I was really struck by how your chapter titles actually tell your story. So your titles are the cold star problem, the tipping point, escape velocity, the ceiling, and then the moat. So I want to go through um, each of the steps to solve the cold star problem, which we will start with. So Slack is the story, one of the stories that you tell in that um, section, the workplace chat tool. It's now a household name, but it actually came about a bit accidentally. And you also write about the importance of the atomic network. So I was struck that for Slack to work, you needed three people. For Zoom, just two people, like you and me speaking, would work for Zoom. But for Airbnb, it was 300 listings with 100 reviewed ones. So tell me the story um, of Slack and the importance of this atomic network. Well, Slack is such a fascinating story because it's, it's a lot of things. It illustrates a lot of the concepts of the book, but it's also just such a triumph of entrepreneurship because you had a founder, Stuart Butterfield, who had actually raised quite a lot of money to build a, a new browser-based video game uh, called Glitch. And actually, if you go to YouTube, you can search for the Glitch trailer and you can watch it. And it's just such a wild game that you should you should definitely, everyone should, should watch this thing. You basically live on the heads of um, a dozen giants um, and you're like, and that's the world that you live in and you learn all these skills like underwater basket weaving and you're just like talking to each other all the time. And they worked on it for multiple years. They raised tens of millions of dollars and it, this game, they launched it and it just did not work. Didn't work at all. Um, and Stuart at one point just realized that, okay, we got to actually redo this whole thing. And he very bravely, he had a team of dozens of people that were spread out all over the world. And he actually cut down the team all the way down to, I think it was um, maybe seven or eight people left on the team. And he decided, you know, with the remaining money that was left, and Andreessen Horowitz was uh, was was one of their investors, told their investors, you know, do you want your money back? You know, because we're gonna go do this, do this new thing. And a lot of the investors were like, no, Stuart, we 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 believe in you and we want you to keep going. And so he had actually built the tool because they were very early to remote work. They actually had an office in Vancouver and San Francisco, but they had people spread all over the place. And they had built a set of tools that allowed people to work no matter where they were if they weren't in the same office, including a product that was meant for chat. And, um, and so what they did was they basically took this ch internal chat product, made it very pretty. They restructured all of the um, backend so that any company could use it. And then here's where this concept of, of an atomic network comes in. Here, the problem is if they just went and just announced it on the internet, they say, hey, we have Slack. You should just use this thing. The problem is you'd get a bunch of individual people who would try it and none of their coworkers would be on it and you'd get them for 10 minutes and they'd look around and they'd be like, well, no one I know is using it. I'm just going to quit. And that's the last time they're using Slack. 
But what they did instead was very interesting. Well, they realized that in order to get Slack to work, they had to get entire teams to use Slack all at the same time. It didn't matter if they could add a million users, if every single one of those million users was their own little island, you know, off on their own. They needed to get clusters of people, what I call an atomic network together at the same time. And what they did was they started by onboarding a lot of their friends who were at different startups. And so they had a company called, they had a friend um, working on uh, um, kind of a Spotify competitor called RDO. They had all these other, they had all these startups um, that were, and, and, and they started to just onboard people, little groups at a time. And then when they then announced Slack to a broader set and they could see that their beta users, it was really sticking, they would have people, they would try to onboard people all in big clusters, team by team by team. And the idea there is that, the team is really the atomic network of workplace tools. And you need to get a team to use it all at the same time. And if you can get one team to use it inside a company and you can get a second team to use it inside a company and a third team, well, you can probably buy, do the fourth and fifth and 10th team and 100th team. And you, then, you can take over that entire company and get them all using a product. And I think that that is one of the common patterns that you see in Silicon Valley products is that they start from a really small place and then they add over time. That's why Tinder started on uh, college campuses. That's why uh, Uber started in San Francisco. You often see them start in very small places and then add over time as opposed to trying to announce it using a megaphone to the whole world. Because the problem there is if you don't get enough of the right people in the same place at the same time, you can't build your atomic network and your network just falls apart. So interesting. And then the tipping point. Uh, so I was very struck how you you took away a great lesson about meerkats from your college professor. Now, that's pretty impressive, actually. So tell me about the tipping point. And you mentioned their Tinder. Uh, tell me the story of Tinder. Yeah, so as soon as you're able to build your first atomic network and your second atomic network, you get to a point where your the market starts to tip in your favor. It starts to pull uh, the product out of your hands, and, and this is often written as hitting product market fit, um, which is a great way to describe it. But I think importantly in the concept of pro these network products, these are marketplace companies, these are collaboration tools, these are messaging apps, what you end up learning is that because you have the benefit of being able to replicate um, a strategy over and over again, and, and, and Tinder I'll, I'll, I'll use as, as the example here, you very quickly are able to get the whole market to all standardize and use your product. And that's when you start winning the market and really getting to scale. So Tinder is an amazing story um, on this. And Sean Rad's a friend. He's, uh, he's the co-founder and was previously the CEO. And the story of Tinder was they originally started and they're building a dating app Originally, there wasn't even a swiping left and right kind of mechanic. There was just a um, just a check mark and an X. And John Bedeen, who was the iOS engineer working on it, actually had a deck of cards that he would play with while he was coding. And he just thought, wow, you know, it'd be so fun to just be able to swipe left and right. And he just like invented this left and right swipe mechanism. So they so they built the first version of Tinder, which was actually pretty pretty similar to where where it ended up even today. And they started by just trying to invite their friends. They would just text their friends and say, hey, we're building a new app. Can you try it? 
And the problem with that is that's almost kind of like an insult. You know, you're, you're like telling your friends, like, I think you need a date. And I built a, I built an app, which at the time, you know, online dating was still a little bit more stigmatized at the time. And they said, you know, I think you should just use this thing. So it's a little bit like an insult. And they were like, okay, this isn't working because they invited a bunch of their friends manually and nobody would use Tinder. And they were like, okay, what is a better way to do it? Maybe I should, uh, maybe they needed a way to just get a bunch of people all on at the same time. And so they're, um, uh, one of the co-founders, their younger brother was actually at USC at the time, um, which is, you know, which is a um, university of Southern California based in Los Angeles, um, and was in the Greek system. So he was, you know, kind of part, part of this very, um, hyper-connected, hyper-social group of people. And one of their friends, very popular, very, um, uh, you know, very connected, um, uh, woman was having a birthday party. And so they said, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, um, start, I'm going to have Tinder actually sponsor this party and have it just be an amazing party. It's going to be in a crazy house. There's going to be, you know, uh, tons of cool people there, great music, and just really like, um, really put a lot of budget into it, but we're going to put bouncers in front of this house and you're going to have to install the Tinder app and show that you have installed Tinder and set up your profile before you're able to get into this party. And so 500 people went into this party, and they got 500 installs and nobody used the app that day. But the idea was that the next day they all opened up the app and they were like, you know, there's someone that I wanted to talk to that I saw at the party that I didn't, um, you know, that, that I didn't, didn't get a chance to connect with. And then boom, they're in Tinder and then they're starting to swipe. And what they learned was from that singular party, that was what they needed to be able to take over all of the USC campus. And the tipping point there was they figured out, okay, well, if we can take over one campus using this method, why don't we just throw a lot more parties at all the other hundreds of schools in the United States and what would happen there, right? Well, what would happen was they started to build all these campus ambassador programs. They started to take over all the, all the different universities. And then what would happen is USC would continue to grow and then you had UCLA that would continue to grow. Now, those two networks could then connect with each other, right? But then if you allowed the app to be just used by people in Los Angeles proper, then you would again get all the desirable neighborhoods around these schools. And then you would get Los Angeles more generally. And then from Los Angeles, you can get San Francisco and New York because they're also very interconnected and people will tell each other about the app. And then you've really hit the tipping point where by you, by repeatedly um, launching in all these markets, you can then get it into a lot more markets, kind of bottoms up. Um, and you're building all these atomic networks along the way so that every single one that you add is very stable and can grow on its own. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared. And to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. 
That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv this episode is brought to you by shopify forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to shopify the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell with shopify you'll harness the same intuitive features trusted apps and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Mm. So that explains why you write, why unprofitability is sometimes smart for startups as they try to achieve uh, this tipping point if they rely on a network That's effects. Right. You actually have lots of really interesting examples there. But to keep on the arc so we can um, get to the next bit is escape velocity is your next uh, concept. And there's three underlying forces there, acquisition effect, engagement effect, and economic effect. So here you tell the story of Dropbox. I found this absolutely f- so bit funny. You said that when they initially received too many sales requests, Dropbox would just remove their sales email from their website. <laughs> so they eventually decided to hire more salespeople. Okay, so tell me about how you achieve escape velocity and the importance of growth teams. That's right. That's right. Well, what happens during escape velocity is, and and this is this is really the moment that. That, um, every that every startup uh, really is trying to get to, because this is a point where it's almost like escape ha- velocity happens to you, as opposed to you have achieved it. Right? It's 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 it's, it's a really a reaction from the market, and what you see in in the case of Dropbox and the story that I tell there is um, I've been friends with uh, Drew Houston and and Arash uh, for for many years, and, and they're the two co-founders of of Dropbox, and they got to a point where the product was just growing so fast that they just didn't know what to do with all the inbound sales requests. And so they would just, you know, the culture there was maybe do we need salespeople? You know, maybe people could just uh, put in their credit cards and, and the whole business can be based off of that. Right. And, um, and, and by the way, that's not an uncommon story for many of these, um, what, what, what are called, uh, you know, product led growth, um, uh, B2B products out there. And, and, and so the, the, the story of Dropbox there that's so fascinating is they got to a point where they were growing so fast 
but they didn't quite understand their customers. They, 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 they thought that because so many of the files that people were, were sharing were actually photo apps, uh, f- photos, um, you know, on Dropbox, the, the, the most frequent was, was about that, that they sh- maybe should do a lot more in photos and to build kind of a private social network that's oriented around photos. And this was a time when obviously Facebook was growing, um, very fast and it become very valuable. And, the, the, the point of them hitting escape velocity is escape velocity isn't just sitting there and just trying to scale a business. You need to then start to understand who are the most valuable customers of yours and how do you scale just within the most valuable customers? And what they, what they realized after doing a lot of work was that the most valuable customers that they have were the ones that were editing spreadsheets and writing documents and they were really doing it for work and they were upgrading their Dropbox accounts because of work. And that entire, that completely changed their view that it was then all about, okay, let's figure out how to, um, uh, grow within companies and let's figure out how to monetize companies better. And that's how we continue this huge curve that they have had already built. Because the problem is that as you grow more and more, you start to hit market saturation. You start to hit some of these other, um, uh, you know, headwinds. And when you hit these headwinds, your growth rate year over year starts to inevitably slow down. And you need to start really understanding your users and your networks as opposed to just thinking about it like, okay, we can just let it kind of you know, continue. Um, and, and, and so um, just, to, just to build on, on, on the trio of forces, I start to really define network effects in a different way and, and really kind of add one more level there, which is to say you can use... If you're a network product, if you are a product that at its core is meant to connect people, whether that's for commerce or that's for communication or that's for workplace collaboration, you can use your network to acquire more customers. That's one of the really powerful things that you can do with your network. You can do a referral program. You can tell your users, hey, if you bring your friends into the, into the product, then we will give you $10. Um, that's, you know, that's what, that's what Airbnb and Lyft and Uber and all these other, um, on demand companies have done. Um, and that, that is one, that is the acquisition network effect. That's kind of one way that I view it. There's a second part, which is the engagement network effect, which is kind of the classical definition, which is the more users that use it, the more valuable it is. And we should see this in the data. We should be able to see that the more users are in the network, then the higher the retention rates are, the more times per month people are going to use your app. And the larger, the, 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 um, uh, the longer they're going to stay engaged. And then the final network effect, I call it the economic network effect, which is to say there are many, many cases where a product as it has, gets more users as the network grows, they're more likely to then monetize. A great example is Fortnite, which is kind of a funny one where in video games, if none of your friends play the same video game as you and, um, you're not, uh, and it's, and, and you don't have a lot of people that are playing over and over again, then the value of buying a custom outfit or custom gun or something like that in the game is very low. You only do it to impress other people, right? That's why you're doing it in the same way. Slack has a great version of this too, where as more people, um, end up using Slack inside of a company, the more likely they are to upgrade to a higher level of Slack because then features like search and, um, um, IT administration become more valuable. So those are so the acquisition network effect, the engagement network effect, and the economic network effect are really important to understand because once you break 
kind of the umbrella term of network effect down into those three, then you can start figuring out, okay, well, how do we actually make our referral program better? How do we make our viral growth better? Um, or how do we get make, make, make it so that users engage more with each other? Or for the economic effect, how do we get it so that uh, companies that have more users are able to um, uh, upgrade more easily? Um, and so to me, that, that, that is sort of the, the core of, the, of escape velocity is how do, you, how do you continue it? And how do you master the forces to be able to continue that over time? Mm. And then you hit the ceiling. <laughs> you were yeah. doing so well as a company. And you're right, most people think the company has won when it hits the tipping point, it has escape velocity, but not those inside the company. So I love this um, decree from Apple that you uh, relay, which is Apple famously decreed, we have over 250,000 apps on the App Store. We don't need any more fart apps. <laughs> so tell me, all right, so we use a different example, but tell me about YouTube and algorithms as a solution uh, to overcrowding and then therefore avoiding the growth ceiling. Yes, well, so, so the growth ceiling comes for a very um, simple mathematical reason, which is that if you're growing really fast, um, on a small base, if you start out with a thousand users, in order to uh, quadruple, you just need four thousand users. But if you have a hundred million users and you need to quadruple, okay, that means you need to go find three hundred million users. It gets a lot harder. It gets a lot harder, and that's one issue. The second issue, on top of that, is as more users show up, inevitably there are. Um, uh, factors like market saturation, like maybe you've just gotten, you've already gotten all your core market onto the, onto the product. You know, a good example uh, during my time at Uber was we eventually got everybody in cities like New York and San Francisco and LA to download Uber. And so all the new users that were adding and downloading Uber over time were people that were from the suburbs. Now, if you're in the suburbs, you probably have a car. Right. You probably um, have, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're probably used to driving 30 minutes plus to go to work. And so you have a very different use case for Uber versus before. And those users are going to be naturally less engaged. Um, and so what, what ends up happening in, in, in these cases is if you don't um, figure out how to deal with, uh, all of this um, oversaturation by adding new products, by improving the product for um, these new users, then your growth rate is just going to slow down. YouTube and Twitter and all these social media products have a very interesting version of this, which is um, at the very beginning, and I interviewed Steve Chen, who's one of the co-founders, they just didn't have enough videos. Um, they felt like they, you know, you would often search for products, uh, sorry, search for videos that you were looking for and you would just get zero results. And so they were just really, really focused on just getting enough videos going at all. Now, what happens today is the opposite, which is there's too many videos. How do you know what to watch? Um, and if you're a content creator, you have the problem of how do you get your new videos discovered? That's actually really difficult too. And so, um, uh, and, and if you don't manage that well, what's gonna happen is the video content creators are going to just go to TikTok. They're going to go to other platforms where they can get more views. And so it becomes imperative to solve this. And these are some of the factors that drive companies just hitting the ceiling and not being able to, to triple or quadruple each year. They end up starting to grow 50% a year, um, which, you know, in, in, in tech, uh, if you're, if you're trying to build a hyper growth company, that's just too slow. 
So interesting. Um, and then the final part of your framework is the moat. This is essential to survival because most startups fail. So in traditional businesses, I think Warren Buffett has made this uh, concept pretty popular. Um, in a traditional business, you need a strong brand or a unique business model. But tell me what it is for companies with network effects and also the story you tell about Airbnb's German competitor, Wimdu. I mean, what a story. They cloned um, Airbnb's model and they also had network effects. So this idea of this European company basically <laughs> taking an American one and just cloning it. That's right. So tell me what happened and how Airbnb maintained the moat. That's right. Well, so, so there has been a long history of startups from the Bay Area waking up one day and finding that um, their product idea has been cloned in Asia or cloned in Europe or cloned elsewhere. And they have this really tough decision to make because they might not be ready to compete at that given time. Um, they may not have enough uh, employees. They may not have enough funding. And so they, they, they're forced into a position to say, okay, are we going to now compete halfway across the world even though we don't have any experience? And Airbnb faced that against a company called Wimdu, which was created by the folks at Rocket Internet. It was um, uh, who famously, they also built a Groupon competitor. They also built a eBay competitor. Um, both of those were very successful for them. And so they built an Airbnb competitor. And when they announced it, it was a scary, scary situation. And I talked to a lot of the early Airbnb folks who who, who were there. And they, they were like, oh, wow, a European competitor comes out of nowhere, Wimdu, they've raised $90 million more than Airbnb. They've hired hundreds of people more than Airbnb and they've already signed up and the total number of listings in Europe already seems higher than Airbnb. And you're just like, what do you do in a case like that? How, you know, and, 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 and the hard part about thinking about this from a network effects situation is you should look at that and say, wow, if, if, uh, um, if, if your competitor already has more listings, more resources and more people, they should have the positive network effects that allow them to then win that market. And yet years later, Wimdu is a case study in this book and Airbnb is the company that we all talk about. So what happened? Right. And so what I describe in, in, in the book is that ultimately um, Airbnb figured out that it's the quality of the listings that matter the most. And so if you had a lot of unique, um, you know, valuable listings, if you built a denser network, you had stronger atomic networks, that's what mattered, not the total number of listings. That didn't matter that much at all. Because again, if you have a lot of listings, um, but spread over a lot of different things, a lot of different countries and listings aren't that good, then for Airbnb, um, then, you know, the, the, the reality is if you have a lot of great listings in the major cities of Europe, that actually matters more, even though the numbers uh, may, may, may not match. And so what Airbnb did was they raised more money. They hired a whole team of people in Europe. They went really, really fast. Um, and uh, they, they really were able to beat Wimdu using, uh, using quality um, as opposed to just focusing on the quantity. Wimdu had actually partnered with a lot of kind of hostels and kind of like lower quality supply side inventory 
that were just less desirable compared to um, compared to Airbnbs, which were way more way more unique and way more kind of built organically. Um, and and I think this is a recurring pattern that you see over and over again. You often have a well resourced competitor. It's often um, uh, you know a new initiative from from a Google or from an Apple or something like that that tries to take on an existing startup that has a lot of momentum. Um, I'm obviously also seeing this firsthand because I have uh, Twitter competing with Clubhouse, which is which is another you know good good example of this. And when 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 you see this, it is easy to think that the big that the bigger player will automatically win. But what I write about in in that um, uh, in in those chapters in the book, the moat, is that that's usually um, way way harder than it appears um, because the big because the big player always feels like they want to they want to use all their resources they want to do a big bang launch they want to just get everyone using the product at the same time um, and and then that's how it'll be a success but in reality organically building atomic networks one at a time um, is what is required to get the, the the moat to be as deep as possible and then just to add one final thing just to add um, to to I think the the overall theory of what is a moat one way to quantify what a moat is is um, you, you could you could argue, and some people have argued that, for example, Uber does not have much of a moat, and and you could say, and 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 I could argue both sides of it. But one of the things that tells to me that there definitely is a moat is you you have to ask the question for a city where Uber already exists. So let's say that Uber already is in um, is in Seattle, Washington, or is already in in uh, Los Angeles. How much money would it take for a new entrant to be able to build the same uh, enough of a to, to build a, an atomic network enough of a network that they can then be stable and operate and the answer to that these days is that network is so um, uh, you'd have to build such a big network in order for that to happen that it's certainly on the on the degrees of several hundred million dollars for a new um, for a new city, and so because of that, I think of Uber's mode as actually uh, reasonably deep, as opposed to if there were a new city in the early days that Uber hadn't yet. Um, taken over, and there was another company that was going head to head against it. Whether you're talking thinking about DD versus Uber, or you're thinking about Ola versus Uber in India, well, at that point, there, there's no moat at all because um, both companies have the exact same amount of cost in order to build an atomic network. And so that's one way that I think about quantifying the moat um, and moving it beyond purely the conceptual, um, you know, understanding of it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely fascinating. Before I let you go, Andrew, I've got to ask you one more question. Um, in the, your acknowledgments, you thank your colleagues on the consumer investing team for shouldering the burden while you took evenings and weekends off to write. Evenings and weekends, how many hours do you work? <laughs> <laughs> so this book took three years to write. Uh, the first year was uh, was interviewing a lot of people, generating a lot of raw notes. That was really fun. That was a very like fun experience just to connect with um, a lot of very interesting people. And, and as you mentioned at the very beginning, I got to interview, um, you know, friends and colleagues from Dropbox and Tinder and Slack and Zoom and a lot of the CEOs and co-founders of all these great companies. So that was really fun. Um, and then once I got into actually writing, uh, it was just like a complete slog because I took all the ideas that I had learned from, uh, from, from, from all my interviews and I tried to cluster them into core points. And I wrote actually 
a 30 page kind of mega outline of every point that I had made, uh, that, that I had, um, on the topic. And then the idea was that basically, and the book ultimately is, is, I think it's like almost 400 pages. And so, um, basically each page became, um, 10 pages, um, in, 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 in the thing. And then to force myself to write, I ended up actually buying a separate computer where I only had my writing app, Ulysses, um, installed. And I turned on all the ch like childproof tools, um, which you can turn on to like block yourself from viewing different websites. And so I, I blocked my email, I blocked Reddit, I blocked Twitter, I blocked like all my favorite websites. Um, and then my really, my, my favorite thing was, uh, there's a thing called a kitchen safe where you can basically, um, put your phone and then you can lock it away from yourself for three hours. And so I would basically just, you know, when, when I was done with work, rather than just get into the usual grind of then checking email and like texting people and this and that, I would actually just put my phone inside this kitchen safe, lock it uh, for three hours, sit at my computer where I had no apps installed other than my writing app, and I would just force myself to write as much as possible. So anyway, so after a couple of years of that, I'm very happy to be done and to have the, the, the book out um, in, in, in the world. And and it comes out uh, December 7th. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. Oh, no, it is a great book. Wait, so now are you back to working weekends and evenings at your day job? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, we, we, uh, we, we work in a service business where we, um, uh, where it's our job to cater to founders and entrepreneurs. Um, and so when they want to talk to me, um, they, I, I talk to them when they, whenever they want to talk to me. So, um, so yeah, so that, that's, that's what ends up happening. <laughs> well, I think, it's just absolutely fascinating talking to you and all the time and effort you put into the book, I think has certainly paid off. It's an absolutely fascinating book, um, The Cold Start Problem. And I do encourage everyone who's listening to pick up um, the book because it's written very accessibly. It's full of stories and it's almost like, um, I want to almost describe it like a textbook if you want to understand what is happening in Silicon Valley. <laughs> How did these companies get here? Um, so I found it just a great read. So thank you very much. Um, Andrew Chen for writing the book and for taking the time uh, to speak to us um, on this podcast. And thank you all for tuning in. I'm Linda Yu, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared Business Weekly.